Redeemer, we're in Acts 27, and uh, if you've been tracking along, we're, we're almost home, so to speak, in this book. As you make your way there, uh, I'd encourage you to take some time to look at the map under your sermon questions. There's a map. So if you want to just, you don't have to look at it while I read, but just to give you perspective on how far uh, and where Paul is traveling, I, I put that there for you. A few other things to, to make mention. Um, I'm not a sailor. Outside of being on a boat once uh, with my wife on a cruise in the Rankins, I've never been on a boat. So there's just a lot of terminology in here. He talks about a fathom. I mean, what's a fathom? It's a, it's a, a unit of measurement for distance. Uh, this word, lee, you're going to see a lee uh, repeated over and over again. What is a lee, right? So a lee, which I had to look up, uh, is, is the side of the, the ship that is facing more towards uh, the land and not the sea or the ocean. So it's the stable side. And so when you hear Paul or Luke talking about they were traveling on the lee side or the lee of this island or of this mainland, what they were saying was that we were trying our best to stay close to shore lest the waves coming uh, from the south and from the west uh, overtake us. And so just pay attention as you hear this. Uh, second thing, they're going to be ch- they're changing ships. They board one ship and then they get off and head for, get on a grain ship from Alexandria, which is northern Africa. And their intention is to take that grain ship, which is a, a larger ship with grain to Italy, to Rome. And so there, you may hear me refer to the ship, but they're actually on two different ships. You'll also hear Paul speak about the fast being over. Uh, Paul was a seafaring or seafaring person. He had several missionary tours. And Paul, uh, Luke alerts us that when these things take place, it's not a time of the year when sailors should be traveling. They should have docked and ported it in for the winter. Rather, uh, they chose to ignore wisdom. And so some of what's happening here is uh, because they just wouldn't listen. This is God's word. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul uh, and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on aboard. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. 
But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out from sea there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on the, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from any head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in this ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in sea, and at the time, same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable and the stern was broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land. 
and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And it was so that they all were brought safely to land. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for being a speaking God. The gods of this world, they overpromise and they underdeliver. They cannot speak. They cannot redeem us. They do not love us. But you, O oh God, our God from the heavens, you are alive, you are enthroned, and you have gravity and substance, and you delight to speak to your people. You delight to speak to your people through your word as it is faithfully proclaimed. And Father, I do pray that in the next several minutes that you would speak to your people, that you would build our confidence and hope in you, that you would remind us of what it means to follow you in a dangerous world, that you, oh God, would remind us how lovely and beautiful uh, King Jesus is. Do this this hour, we pray in your son's name. Amen. So the passage before us is a travel narrative. And it's written in great detail uh, by Luke. You might remember uh, that Luke uses uh, the we in verse 1 interchangeably throughout the book of Acts. And every time you hear him resort to we, it means that he is now a part of the drama, a part of the story. And so this is the first time Luke has used we in a long time. So presumably, as Paul was in prison, uh, Luke uh, perhaps was not there. Uh, but he is here, right here and right now. He is here on this ship with the Apostle Paul. But you might remember his audience uh, is, is, is a man by the name of Theophilus, a man who has, we believe, uh, compensated Luke favorably to travel the world to investigate the claims of Jesus. And so when Luke was sent by Theophilus to investigate this Jesus guy, Luke went and got eyewitness accounts, and he compiled what he heard. And now Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, finds himself here. Now, why? Why would he be writing this? Why would he spend this much time about a storm and about a sea and about a shipwreck to Theophilus? Perhaps, right? One reason is he wants to show that God is relentless, and nothing will stop God from accomplishing God's agenda. In other words, you can put evil Jews who want Paul dead. You can put corrupt leaders in front of Paul who want to hand him back over. You can put him before a corrupt king. You can even throw this sea and this storm at Paul, and God will protect him so that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That, 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 that's a reason that this could be here. Another reason this could be here is to show what a cruciform life looks like. As a follower of Jesus, we're not immune to troubles. As a follower of Jesus, in the obedience of Jesus, we will be persecuted. We will endure hardships. But the gospel reminds you that you will overcome. That that, that could be a reason that, that Luke is writing this. Another reason, right? could be that, that as Theophilus is on the comfort of his couch, that this right here is a reminder that you may never sail on a sea and you may never step foot on a boat, but make no mistake about it. 
The Christian life is a journey, and it's a dangerous one. And there will be twists, and there will be turns, and you will come close to losing your life in the service of King Jesus, and you will not be at time to be able to find your way up or down in the service of Jesus, but it's okay. You'll make it home. You'll make it home. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want us to look at this passage under three headings, and they all begin with a D. I want to show, talk about danger, that the Christian life is a journey. And as Wilson read from the Psalm of Ascent, that if you were to ask any Jew about uh, what it means to follow Yahweh, they would say it's a journey. It's a journey from where we are to a home where the builder and maker is God to that city. It's a pilgrimage. We, we, we are pilgrims and strangers and aliens on purpose, on, on the way home to God. A- any Jew would have, would have picked up on that. Uh, and it, and, and so that's what I want to tap into, that, that the Christian life is a dangerous journey. I also want to talk to you about what, what's the duty of believers. Is there something that we should be becoming while we're here? And then I'm going to talk to you about deliverance that ultimately comes from God. So danger, duty, and deliverance. Let's look at this first heading, a a, a world that is dangerous. Paul writes uh, in in Romans that all of creation groans that it waits for the revealing of the sons of the Lord. And here's what that means. It means that we have been redeemed and our redemption has been accomplished and it cannot be added to. You stand right now if you are a believer redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You have already been made new. A new spirit has been placed within you. Your heart of stone has been removed. You have a heart of flesh that your sins are not held against you, that they have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Your redemption has happened. And here's what's also true, that creation has not yet been redeemed, that it is waiting. It is waiting for King Jesus to come and fix it. It is waiting for King Jesus to return to make all things new. And so you get these images, these images of creation groaning even in our passage. We refer to the sea and to the sun, which does not shine for a season, or the stars that, that are cloaked in darkness. But of all the elements of nature that is, that is posing a threat in this passage, the one that is most dangerous, it's wind. And this wind is repeated over and over, almost as if it has a mind of its own. It's clapping and it's gusting. And so pay attention to this because it's it's repetition by Luke. In verse 4, it says the winds were against them. In verse 7, the wind did not allow us to go farther. It says, then after they assumed that they could embark again because a south wind blew gently, they left. But in verse 14, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster hit them from the land side. In verse 15, they could, the ship could not face the wind. It says, we traveled with great difficulty and we were driven along. Verse 18, we were violently storm tossed. Verse 20, neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and no small tempest left 
lay upon us. All hope of being saved was abandoned. What's going on? Why does Luke keep writing about the wind? What's in the, what's in the back of his mind? Maybe it's Jonah, right? That there are a lot of similarities between Acts 27 and Jonah 1. God's messenger is on a ship and there's a storm. It's here and then it's also in Jonah. There are non-believing sailors on the ship in Jonah and there are non-believing sailors here on this ship with Paul. There's a great storm, right? There's a great storm in both. They throw the cargo off. They throw the cargo off in Jonah. They throw the cargo off here. They cry out to God. In Jonah, they cry out. Well, did you hear them? These sailors cry out that day would come. Just let daybreak come so that we can see where we are, God. And we don't know which gods they cried out to, but they cried out. But there is discontinuity because Paul is not in disobedience or defiance. He wants to go to Rome. He is trying to get on a ship to go to Rome. So he is not like Jonah who wants to go to uh, Tarshish when he's supposed to be going to Nineveh. So there's discontinuity there. Is Satan lurking in the back of Luke's mind? Maybe. This could be a last-ditch effort by powers of darkness to stop Paul from taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, which at that time would have been Rome. Now, stay with me because this is a theory. I, I can't prove it, but I think it's worth considering. You remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders who wanted to kill him? They said, you are of your father, the devil, and he has been a murderer from the beginning. And you want to kill me and you're really doing his work. Now, what has happened in Acts 21 through 26? What has happened to Paul? The religious leaders want him dead by any means necessary, with false charges, with corrupt governors, with send him down to us so that we can ambush him on the way. So you start to see what's going on there. In the next chapter, Acts 28, Paul's going to make it to the island of Malta. And guess what's going to happen to Paul? He's going to be bitten by a snake. You're like, what? Where have we seen a serpent attack God's people? It ought to take us back to Genesis when God made everything good and then the slithering serpent shows up. It ought to take us to Revelation when the woman is in childbirth about to give birth to this, this, this Messiah and the serpent who's now a dragon in the book of Revelation stands there as she's giving birth ready to devour. That is Satan. That is his ambition. It is to get in the way of anything that is good and anything that is glorious and anything that is of God, where have we seen Satan use the wind and use fire and, and, and use water and the harm of God's people? You might remember the book of Job. When Job, when, when, when it opens up with Satan roaming the earth and he presents himself before the Lord and the Lord says, says, where have you been? I've been roaming the earth. And what does the Lord say to him? I have no one on this earth like Job. And Satan tells him he's only worshiping you because you blessed him. He says, remove your hand from him. Let me have him. And the Lord says, so be it. Only do not take his life. And what happens in the next chapter? Satan sends marauders 
to take Job's property. There is fire, probably lightning, that comes and burns up uh, Job's animals. And then a great wind, same word here, great wind comes and collapses Job's son's house, killing all of Job's children. And who's behind that? Job 1 tells us that this is Satan, and so somehow he is able to get here, at least in the Bible, and not from our Western minds, because we don't think he's real. And we don't completely understand what Paul's talking about in Ephesians when he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and powers and and cosmic beings in heavenly places, says Paul. Paul, last week when he was preaching, he says, do you not know that I've been sent to turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God? Paul in 1 Thessalonians, you know what he wrote the Thessalonians? He says, I've tried and tried to get to you, but Satan has hindered us. How in the world can Satan stop a missions trip? We don't like to think about that. Or Romans 16, and God will soon put Satan under your feet. But until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. You hear this? All of this could be a last ditch effort by Satan, whether it's people or weather or serpents to take him out so that the gospel does not go to Rome. And this could be a storm from God. God told Job, where were you when I told the sea how far it can come? I control the wind and the storehouses of snow. And if this is of God, then what is God up to in this storm? Is he wanting to deepen Paul's faith? We know that God could stop the wind. When Jesus was on the boat and his disciples were frantic, afraid that they were going to die, Jesus says, peace and be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. And yet when you read Acts 27, there is no peace and be still. Maybe it's bitter providences. Maybe it's in the words of the hymn that we'll sing shortly. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides above the storm. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may be bitter tasting, but sweet will be the flower. That whole hymn is about the bitter providences of God. And maybe that's what's going on right here. Here's what we do know. The storm is violent. Creation groans. Satan roams. The seas foam. Life is fragile. And it's dangerous. And it's dangerous. And we need to remember that. Now, here's the next point. What's a believer's duty that I want to compel you that this ought to move towards delight? 
that as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, that what I'm going to say are duties that, that, that by God's grace and by his spirit, these postures, these behaviors can become things that we take joy in doing some believer's duties. Now, you'll notice at verse 1 that Luke tells us that we, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. Well, who's the we? Obviously, it's himself and it's the apostle Paul. But, but, but look down right there in verse 2 that we, as we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, so I think what, what Luke is doing sometimes when he uses the we in here, especially at the beginning, he's talking about this little church, these three little believers, right, on these ships that, that, that they are going together. Now, if you really read the Bible and, and engage your heart in it, where you sort of get caught up in the people there and what's happening, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I, I want Paul to have a pass. You know what a pass is, right? When I was finishing uh, school, uh, I was in my last semester. And, man, I had a really, I had a lot of classes. I ended up co-oping with the company and had taken three or four semesters out. And so when I came back to actually engage in school, I always had to take a lot of classes to kind of catch up. And so here I am, I'm about to graduate, and my, my, my favorite professor was from Sierra Leone. He was an African uh, pastor who taught uh, engineering, and he was so gracious to me. He knew that I was co-oping. He knew I wasn't wasting time. He knew my, my class load. He helped me put it together, and he came to me. He says, Elbert, you're a good student. I give you pass on your final exam. <laughs> Right. And so he, he told me, say, hey, I'll count what you made on your midterm as your final. You, you don't 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 take my final. You focus on their finals. When I read this, I kind of wish like, Lord, can you give Paul a pass? Do you know what he's done? He has been beaten almost to death. He's been jailed. He's been flogged. First, uh, Second Corinthians 11. He's been shipwrecked three times. And that was before this shipwreck. And I'm like, God, can you give him a pass? He's been in prison for two years. And you take him out of prison and you put him on a ship and he has to go through this. Come on, God, give him a pass. And he doesn't. These Christians go through this journey with everyone else. And here's the thing, they're good. Paul would say that, that it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If something were to happen to Paul, Paul would, his body would be thrown overboard, maybe never ever to be recovered again. Paul's soul would go and be with Christ. And then when Jesus cracks the sky and comes back with the voice of an archangel, guess what? Paul will be coming down with him. And then the sea, according to the Bible, would have to vomit up her dead. And so Paul's body would come out of the ground and be united with his soul, and he would go to be with King Jesus forever. So on one hand, whatever happens when this ship is going down, Paul is good, right? But what if we did not look at this from Paul's perspective? 
What if we looked at this passage from the perspective of everybody else on the boat? You see, Luke does. What does Luke write for us over there in verse 37? It's the shortest verse, and he put it, puts it in brackets. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. Now, that would have been easy to verify, that if you are traveling, you have a travel log. We got this many grains of wheat, this many grains of rice. We got this many uh, people traveling. We got some prisoners. We got some soldiers. We got some sailors. And there's a log. And so what Luke probably has access to is the log. And what we see here, there are 276 people total on the ship, three Christians that Paul calls we. Now, look at this shipwreck from their perspective, the 273 who don't know Jesus. They're not straight. If this ship goes down, they not, not only are overwhelmed by the sea and overwhelmed by the waves, they will be overwhelmed by the wrath and judgment of God. And so their desperation starts to show. They are clawing and fighting for their lives. How do we know? Paul tells us, Luke tells us, they didn't even eat for 14 days. For 14 days, they did not eat. In verse 33, I don't think it was just seasickness. In suspense, the anxiety, the wondering if they would live the not wanting to take their eyes off of the storm. They did not eat for two weeks. What about the sailors? What's the cardinal rule of a sailor? You never abandon your ship. You have been entrusted with cargo and with people, and you go down with the ship. What did the sailors want to do? They tried to get the emergency boat and tried to let down the anchor, throw off the emergency boat and cut the cords and leave the ship to run aground with everybody else on board. That is desperation. They are jettisoning what they're supposed to be doing as sailors. What about the soldiers who were keeping guard over the prisoners? You know what the soldiers wanted to do? They said, we're going to kill all the prisoners. You're like, bro, y'all are so gutter. What are you doing? Why would you kill the prisoners, including Paul, who is a prisoner? Because in Roman law, if you did not deliver the prisoners that you were charged to task, that you were tasked to keep, their fate was your fate. Remember when Paul was in jail in Philippi and the jailer was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners got away? Remember what happened with Peter when Peter left, that the king had the soldiers killed because they got away? And Roman law, that's what happened. Now, this is how desperate they are. Now, here's the question. What role does Paul play? And this is what I want you to think about. What role does the apostle Paul play in this narrative, if you could take your pen and erase out everything Paul says and everything Paul does, what happens to this ship 
and to these people. I'll tell you what's happening. Ain't nobody walking away alive. If starvation doesn't kill them, the sailors are going to leave, the prisoners are going to kill them. It's utter chaos. And what if I told you this, Christian? This is how God intends to use you. In a world that is dangerous, that has lost her way, in a world that is desperate, in a world that heaves with war, in a world that viruses take out millions, in a war that cancer ravages the body, in a world where violence lives, what do you think God would have you to be becoming here? You see, I get it that Christians get a bad rap. We have done some awful things in the name of Jesus in the history of the world. And here's a but. But Christians have done amazing things for this world. We have protected life. We move into the Ukraine when everyone's leaving. We live sacrificially below our means in the service of King Jesus. We proclaim the good news. We build hospitals. We educate and disciple children. We start schools that teach a Christian world and life view, and we don't say you have to be a Christian to come. We will build clinics, and we will adopt, and we will speak the truth in love. The day that God plucks all Christians out of this world, that's not a world that any of you would want to live in. And I'm not saying this to puff us up. I'm saying that if you remove Paul and who Jesus has made him to be from this ship, there ain't nobody living because they're all acting according to their own folly and own impulses. So I'm calling this a duty. It is your responsibility as a citizen of King Jesus, to love this world and to be present in her. Now, why am I calling it a duty? It's, it's six important words you see in verse 23. An angel, and here it is, of the God to whom I belong. So notice in verse 23, in, 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 in the company of 273 other non-Christians, Paul first and foremost says that my God is the one and true God, that I worship him and what my God is for me, I, am, I belong to him. I am his bond servant. And wherever I go, whomever I am with, I stand at attention to serve him. That's why we just confessed through the Heidelberg Catechism, Christian, what is your 
only comfort in life and in death. And here it is. You are not your own, but you belong in body and soul, in life and death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we get that, guess what the Holy Spirit will do? The Holy Spirit makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him and not for ourselves. And so it is appropriate to say, well, what about Paul? What about Paul? What about Paul? What about me and my suffering? That's legitimate, but it's not ultimate. Because we belong to Jesus, we can now say, what about them? And what about what living in this world means for them? And how do you want me to serve them? What do you want me to tell them? What do you want me to do to serve them? That this passage is so other-centered. Paul's behavior here is not like Jonah. He is not asleep. He is not detached. He is not distant. He is present and active and engaging and concerned with human life, whoever it is on this boat. Prisoners, sailors, whomever. And this is why we're not to retreat in silos or to try at all costs to isolate or insulate ourselves from the dangerous world or other image bearers. The next best place next to eternity or being with Jesus is for you to be right here living this dangerous life on this dangerous world with people who don't know your glorious God. This is a duty. Paul says, I belong to Jesus. And shouldn't this become a delight of ours? Where we actually fall in love with doing the will of Jesus, where we actually love being salt and light, where we love not considering our needs but the needs of others, where we love people to life. And so what, what, what do we see in Paul? I want to make this pretty quickly. The first thing we see in Paul is he just lives with wisdom and God-given common sense. That is such a gift to this world in a world of fools to just have some common sense, right? Just, just, just some, just, I, I ain't even talking about quoting a whole bunch of scripture. I'm just talking about take the cue from the ant you sluggard. In the winter, in the summer, he, he stores up extra food so that when the winter comes, he has more food. Don't go into debt. Save some money. That's just kind of like common sense stuff, right? This is Paul. Paul says, I told y'all we shouldn't have left. Y'all should have listened to me. Now, why would Paul say that? What gives him the audacity to say that? It's because this ain't his first mission trip. This is his fourth one. He's traveled these roads before, taking the gospel everywhere. And so he has learned, hey, y'all, I, I know 
that it's too late. The fast has already happened. This is the fall, late fall. And, and, and I know from my years of sailing that don't know why a sailor sail these seas around this time of year. Y'all should have listened to me. That's my translation, right? Now, why? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they listen to Paul? Because people are going to be foolish people, right? The centurion, who was just kind to Paul, wouldn't listen to Paul. He'd listen to the sailor, the captain, and the owner of the ship. Now, it, it don't take a, a lot of imagination to understand why the owner of the ship doesn't want to wait three months at a port, why he wants to go get his ship to Rome to get his money. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the more people stay on this ship eating up the food on the ship that you're transporting, the, the more they start to eat into your profits. And sailors going to do what sailors do. They want to get to the port. Don't, don't have us in the boondocks. Put us in a big city like Rome where we can do what sailors do, right? And Paul is up here saying, bro, y'all are driven by wealth and pleasure, and y'all have put wealth and pleasure over human life. You're fools. You should have listened to me. Do you believe that Christians have common sense wisdom that this world just needs to hear? That's what Paul is saying. You also see that Paul is a mediator between God, the spiritual realm, and this physical realm and these people. That you'll notice that Paul stood up and says, an angel stood before me and he promised me that I must make it to Rome. I must stand before Caesar. Now, that, that there's a, a, a word play here that Paul stood among them in verse 21, but he's standing before them only because the angel has stood upon him. And so you get Paul, who is listening to the angel, listening to divine revelation, listening to God, and then taking what he hears from God and then giving it to the world who lacks, who lacks truth. God did not reveal himself to non-believing sailors. He revealed himself and his will to the saints. And then this saint is taking this revealed will of God and then blessing those on the ship. He's a mediator. He's standing in the gap. He's praying. He's calling on God's name. Do you know that you have been lavished with all wisdom and insight into Christ and his mysteries? Do you know that you have something better than an angel coming to you? Every time you read this by faith, you have the written, revealed word of King Jesus. And the posture for us is to commune with our God and to make him known to the world around us. You also have Paul caring for their bodies. He says, look, man, y'all haven't eaten in 14 days. And this isn't like super spiritual, right? He says, look, bro, I know that our bodies need food and you need to eat. It's not good that you have not eaten. Take some food and eat. He is caring for their physical needs. Paul also is here as one who trusts the word of God. He says, look, man, God has shown me that, that I will make it to Caesar. And I'm telling you, take heart. I have faith in God. Do you understand the importance of a faithful saint enduring the, the, the sufferings of this world 
but you've traced the hand of God that you see his faithfulness year over year over year over year over year over year. And when the world is falling apart, I trust God. Do you understand how that can bring calm and hope to a dangerous people, a dangerous world? That's what Paul is doing. And I actually think there's more than him concerned about their physical needs. I actually think some, if not all, of these folks are saved. Now, I don't want to overspeak, but look at verse 31. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. What did the angel say to Paul? Paul, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Do you understand how the word saved is used in the book of Luke? Let me refresh your memory. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But we believe we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And the Lord added to the number day by day those being saved. It could be that this is a word play by Luke. It, this could be that in keeping with his vocabulary in the entire book of Acts that saved means something more than just escaping the wind. It means more than just surviving the shipwreck. In the book of Acts, saved has meant being saved from the judgment of God. Paul being granted, everyone on the ship, it could mean more than just their lives are going to make it. It could mean that Paul, as you live a cruciform, cross-bearing life, that something beautiful is going to happen. As you bear your cross and follow me, you're going to make the cross of Jesus loom large. I can't wait to get to heaven. I want to find these 276. I, I want to go find Paul. Who, who, who made it? Who made it through with you? And I don't mean to the island of Malta. I mean, you crossed that other shore where you made it to Zion. You made it to God's home through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Doesn't this make sense that this will happen like this? Think about Paul and who he is. It is through him, him alone, because of Paul, everyone else is blessed. Don't that sound like the gospel to you? We are like them about to be overwhelmed with wrath, overwhelmed with judgment. But because of someone else, because of his obedience, because of his work, because of his sacrifice, because his drawing near to us, because of him coming into this dangerous world and taking on the ways of God's judgment, because of him, salvation is applied and credited to us. It could be that Paul is functioning in that same way, that as he models Jesus, these people make it to the shore and they bow. It's a theory. What would happen? Here's a question. If you weren't here, would the world notice? If you weren't in your practice or in your office or in your studio or your classroom, 
would the world miss you? Would they know you were there? This is a reminder, saint, that we have a glorious duty here in the service of King Jesus. It is to be wisdom. It is to mediate. It is to care for the needs of people. It is to care for the souls of people. Last thing, the God who delivers us safely home. It would be unfair to this text to only look at the danger and only look at the duty of Paul. The leading character here is God. Did you notice who Paul thanks for the food? He thanks God and he gave thanks to God for the food. Did you notice who dispatched the angel to Paul? The angel came from God. God is not silent in this narrative. He is very much present. Did you notice that Paul is not alone? There is we. There are three believers in this dangerous journey with him. Luke and Aristarchus. Over in Colossians, we're told that Aristarchus is Paul's fellow prisoner. William Henderson says that Aristarchus has never been on trial. He never was convicted of anything. He willingly gave up his freedom to make sure that Paul would not suffer alone. Did you notice what the centurion did for Paul when they landed? He let Paul off in verse 3. He treated him kindly and gave him leaves to go be with his friends. Who's doing all of that? That is God. I want you to do something, Paul, yes, but I'm here with you. Signed, God. And did you notice that they make it home safely? The ship is gone, the cargo is gone, but not one person died. Who did that? God. This is the promise to God's people, however dangerous the journey. God will finish what God has started. He will bring you home. Amazing Grace, close, it, it, it has this line. It's one of my favorite lines, and I think it's true for us. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will bring you home. It's dangerous. There are some duties that ought to be delights as we live in this dangerous world. But God will deliver you. He's bringing you home in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word. Father, make us a people who think deeply about it. Help us, Lord, to not only be hearers but doers thereof. Remind us, Lord, above all things that you are with us. You love us. Your hand is ever upon us. As we come to the table, Lord, I pray that we will eat and drink in faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.